Hey, young world, the world is yours. What's up? This is your man, Nutter Butter, and you are in the mix with my man, Derek, of Reviews and Duns. Exclusive interviews, exclusive interviews, exclusive interviews of your favorite R&B and hip-hop artists, producers, and songwriters. Stay tuned, you dig. What up, world? Once again, it's Derek Dunn of Reviews and Dunn, back with another interview. Now, before I introduce my guest today, I'm going to let you guys know, you know, I'm excited to talk to this brother. He's a uh, DMV native like myself. So, you know, it's always fun to chop it up with someone from the DMV, you know, because there's so much talent out here and we don't get, you know, enough shine. So before I introduce my guest, you know, I want to start it with a quote. There are musicians and then there's Kendrick Lamar Duckworth. Now, you might be asking yourself, you know, why did I shout out Kendrick? No, no, I'm not talking to Kendrick because, you know, Kendrick ain't from the DMV. However, I am talking to... Accomplished writer and author, Mr. Marcus J. Moore, and we're going to get into his book, The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America. So welcome to the line, folks. And how are you doing today, sir? Doing good, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you, man, for taking time out of your uh, busy schedule to shop it up. So how's everything going for you? The COVID starting to slow down a little bit. Uh, you know, we're still in this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is cool, man. I'm, you know, I'm like everybody else, kind of in the crib, working on that next project and uh, you know, writing articles, listening to music, all that good stuff. So, you know, I'm the same, same boat as everybody. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, I think the one, th- the one positive thing to come out of this whole COVID mess for me, um, you know, when I started my website, I had no intentions of um, podcasting, nothing like that. But, you know, when I was, when I was um, going for interviews for, you know, particular artists, you know, a lot of them are like, they don't want to sit down and actually do it, you know, traditional style, which is print. They wanted to do, you know, IG live or verbal. So I had to kind of like, you know, get out, get out of my own way and, you know, get out of my own confidence to start doing, um, you know, podcasting. And I've been tracking um since March, just knocking them out as much as I, uh, much as I can. So yeah, that's the one good thing come out of this. You know, I found a new passion in life, which is podcasting and interviewing. <laughs> I mean, those are two pretty good passions, man. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's get right into it. Um, as I said, you know, you just wrote a book that came out last week, the butterfly effect. How Kendrick Lamar ignited the soul of Black America. Now I haven't finished reading yet. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading a lot of books, but I do have the hard copy. You know, I want to let you know I actually went out and bought the hard copy from Amazon. <laughs> you know, none of this. I have a Kindle, but to me as a collector, it's just something about having that um hardcover book. You can open it and hear the uh sounds as you're turning the pages. And then, you know, I just I believe in supporting the um the art as much as possible. So, you know, if you gotta pay a little bit more you know to support somebody's passion and their work then you know i'm willing to do that so you know sorry kindle folks and i had to get the hardcover edition of mr moore's book <laughs> no i appreciate that man that's a good book all right so let's like, get right into it so as i mentioned you know in your intro you grew up in dc you know i'm a northern va cat but you know dmv i mean dc's right over the right over the bridge so did you always want to pursue a writing career yeah i found out pretty early that writing was going to be it for me. Um, it took me a while to, to marry the two concepts of writing about music or writing and writing about music. Um, but like, uh, I came up in high school as a, you know, a, a journalist there. I was in like the Howard University program uh, at NADJ. And, you know, I was uh, editor-in-chief of the yearbook and a little stuff like that. But yeah, I've been, I've been a journalist for, uh, going on about 20 years, man, um, covering everything from um, 
you know, politics to education to business, starting with the Prince George's Sentinel all the way to the Gazette. And um, yeah, and then about 2010, I decided I wanted to start writing about music. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I was the um, kind of the same way. I um, kind of found my other passion with journalists. Um, my senior year of high school, um, my mom's actually, I'm an army brat, and we, um, she got promoted. So I had to go to El Paso. And that was just like my senior year of high school, man, I had no desire to go to El Paso. And when I got into El Paso, you know, they had a journalism class. So, you know, I signed up for it and just, you know, found a new passion with um, writing. And, you know, I'm, I, I never fully pursued it as much as, you know, as, as strongly as I should have. I um, you know, I ended up joining the Air Force and they, they did have public affairs, but the wait was too long for me to um, get in. So, you know, I took another route and just started my journalism thing again a couple of uh, years ago. So you mentioned um, you want to re- review music. Prior to uh, 2010, had you reviewed an album before, like when you were in high school or in college? No, no. Actually, when I was in high school and college, I was pretty deep into, um, you know, uh, like print journalism. So in college, I was uh, I was part of the, I was an editor, I was an editor at the school paper, Bowie State's paper, and I was all about local journalism. So I was all about, you know, civic issues. I was all about, you know, campus life and things like that. So no, I, I'd always been a, a big fan of music, obviously. Because <clears throat> I grew up in a musical household, but yeah, it wasn't until uh, I didn't write my first record review probably until about 2008, and that was for OK Player. Um, so yeah, I've been reviewing records in earnest from 2009 to to now. Cool. And what was the uh, first album you reviewed? Oh, I reviewed this record by uh, a high school classmate of mine, Tisha Marie. She came out with this EP, uh, and it's funny how it happened. Like, because um, around that time, I knew that. Okay, I still love writing, but I didn't want to do print journalism anymore because I had been covering Montgomery County education for about four years. And so I was tired of covering school boards and, you know, late night meetings and stuff like that. And, um, but I didn't know how to get into music journalism. I thought maybe I had to come out writing for Rolling Stone or writing for these big publications. And so I remember it was like one Saturday evening or something like that. My friend Tisha had an album release party in Virginia. At some spot in Virginia, and when I when I was talking to her, she was like, "Man, I have this really I have what I think is a really good record, but I don't have anybody to write about it, so I don't know what I'm gonna do." And so I bought it. I bought the record, and I was playing the CD on the way back home, and I thought it was good. And so thankfully, I had connections at OK Player, so I reached out to Jimmy Suss, who at the time was the editor in chief, and she let me start writing record reviews, man. So that was my first one, and that's how I came about uh, reviewing reviewing music. I think my uh, like first amateur one was um, way back in 1998. This was Amazon. Amazon just kind of started, and I I wrote like a basic review of a uh, new edition Heartbreak. You know, because I'm a diehard new edition fan. And, and like looking back now, like it's still posted up. Like it's maybe like ten words, and it's so basic. And I'm like, man, what was I thinking about? But I think I think the first one I actually went in depth about was um probably around 04 when I was overseas in um, Europe, you know, during my Air Force stint. I think it was probably Usher's Confession where I actually went down track by track and, like, got very detailed with my uh, reviews. And I think one thing that I've noticed, um, you know, and I'm sure you can the fact it's like, you know, when you get negative criticism, it's by people who don't kind of have the same ears that critics do. Yeah. And, you know, I'm approaching 40 now, so... I try not to be as harsh as I once was. And, you know, my, my thing now is it wasn't for me. You know, that's what I'll say. Like, you know, it wasn't 
for me, but I commend you for finishing a project and for putting stuff out there for your fans. Because, you know, some, some of these stands, man, like ah, the emails I get, like, you know, when I do a bad review is a headache, craziness. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. No, it, it, I totally agree with that. And I'm even seeing it with this project where, you know, the, the Kendrick Lamar book is a very black book. It's about, it's for and about black culture. And a lot of the reviews have been positive, but a couple of the negative ones have been by people who aren't of the culture and can't really identify with. It. So I get it. So it's like it's I'm seeing the split from the inside out. Whereas before I was on the outside looking in, looking at it, but now it's like, oh, okay, I get what it is. And you do a thing that people don't understand. Maybe not everybody fully understands it right away. Um, and then they they put a review on it. And then, it, you know, their word is law kind of thing. Um, but thankfully, the, the love is far outweighs the negativity. For this. Yeah, no doubt. And that's the thing, um, you know, because on my site, um, I don't even like, I don't even post anything, you know, a negative response just because I'm like, you know, I don't want that negativity in the universe. So if somebody says something negative, I'm like, yeah, I'm not even going to entertain, respond to this now. Ten years ago, you know, we would have been battling because I can tell by some of the, you know, John Q. Public, if you will, how they respond, they aren't as deep into it as we are. And I'm like, you know, I'm actually giving, you know, a review. I'm telling you why I didn't like it. I'm not saying it's trash. Like, I'm going into detail why I didn't like it, and it's my opinion. You know, I'm not calling anybody after name. I'm not, you know, making fun of anybody. You know, if I do, it's like, it'll come across professional, but, you know, you get it as um journalist. So, folks, you know, being a journalist, being a critic, like, you know, it's hard work because you got to ride that fine line that's another conversation for another day so tell us man what was the inspiration behind the butterfly effect and just you know shotting out one of the greats right now mr kendrick lamar yeah i mean as corny and as cliche as it sounds i didn't want to wait i didn't want to wait to get flowers because you see i'm sure you see it where you hop on social media and somebody especially a black person will die before their time and then the notion is oh man we didn't give this person their flowers we didn't we didn't celebrate them the way we should have, uh, uh, you know, and then ev- then everybody's sad, right? So this year alone, uh, we, we lost Kobe, we lost Pop Smoke, and we lost Chadwick Boseman and Andre Hill. So I just wanted more than anything else to give flowers to a person and a movement that had a huge impact. And um, I've, I've seen that, you know, Kendrick had been written about in stories here and there, obviously. I mean, he's been covered far and wide, but he needed the book treatment. And I, and I feel like there's other, there are other like-minded artists who deserve to get the same sort of literary treatment. You know, like just off the top of my head, I would love to read a book about um, you know, Yasin Bey or the, the, the Soul Aquarium. You know, people like that where they're still creating and they're still doing their thing, but people just wouldn't think to write a book about them. And it seems logical that we need to be writing books like this for the next generation of Kendrick, you know, Yasin, Erica, Erica Badu, things like that. That's more so what I wanted to do is um, just honestly just give flowers to a movement that that had a profound impact on me and on everybody. I mean, because it's recent history, but it's still very, very poignant history that I think needed to be told in book form, uh, especially when it comes to unapologetic Black art. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's something that um, a lot of my friends and I who are also in journalists talk about, whether it's my guy um, from Purpose Music Group, George Littlejohn, or my homie over at soulandstereo.com at Edward Bowser. Um, it seems like in hip-hop and R&B, those are like the two main music genres where 
as a culture, we rarely give folks their flowers when they're here. But when they mm-hmm. die, as you, you know, alluded to, it's all like that. They were number one. And, you know, it's sad that right now there's certain artists who could, you know, that are still like, you know, making quality music and dope music. If they try and come back out, they get clowned or they get questioned. But the Rolling Stones, G2, Sting, Reba McIntyre can all do still do music for their fan base and never get talked about the way that, say, uh, Big Daddy Kane might or, a, um, you know, Smokey Robinson, which is sad. So, yeah, yeah we, we, we must do better. So when did you actually discover Kendrick's music? Uh, it was about... It was about, I would say about nine years ago. Um, I discovered his music kind of like how everybody did. I mean, obviously there are people who may be bigger, uh, create bigger than I am, who maybe knew about you know, the Kendrick Lamar EP, which came out in 2009, or Overly Dedicated, which came out in 2010. But for me, it was Section 80, and, I, and that was the 2011 record. And I remember specifically because uh, at the time, you know, I was really heavy into reading Pitchfork reviews. I wanted to see what the big review was going to be every day at one o'clock, at one o'clock in the morning. I wanted to see what they were talking about. And uh, one day in particular, I remember I was, I was, um, I was in my, uh, my aunt's house in Maryland, in PG County. And I clicked on the site and I see that they gave this really glowing review to this kid named Kendrick Lamar for this album called Section 80. And so obviously I didn't know who it was. So I went and I checked out the project. And I was floored by the fact that this dude sounded like everything I grew up with, but he also sounded new. So he had this weird way of sounding like NWA, sounding like Tupac, sounding like Outkast, but also sounding like whatever was out at the time. You know, he still had club bangers for kids that were his age. And um, so that was my first introduction to him. And that's what sort of intrigued me. And, and I remember the interviews after that, him talking about, oh, well, you know, this is cool. I love the fact that everybody's loving this album. But wait till I hear my, my debut album, Good Kid, Mad City. And, and so the hype going into that record kept me intrigued because he kept saying, even before that record came out, that, no, I already got the cover done. I got the concept. When this comes out, it's going to be different. I guarantee it. And he definitely lived up to the hype. So my first introduction was, yeah, man, 2011, bro. Yeah, same. Yeah, Kendrick is just, uh, like, he's doing it. And, you know, he, he's one of those cats to where his talent, you know, is just undeniable. His live game is crazy. Um, he doesn't even, like, it's just, you know, he's Kendrick. Like, I mean, what can he say about this cat that hasn't already been said? I'm like, you know, he's easily one of the best right now active MCs and lyricists. And, I mean, you know, you, no matter where you go worldwide, you know, he has that fan base that he rocks with. So if you guys have never seen Kendrick, you know, hopefully once his COVID's over and he does a tour, man, actually go see this cat live because his live game is crazy. I and mean, I'm still hyped from the damn tour I saw a couple years ago. Yeah, that show was crazy. I, I caught him at uh, Barclays Center in Brooklyn in Fort Greene. And I was really taken by the fact that it was just him on stage for the most part. There wasn't nobody else up there like that aside from one other person. And he commanded thousands of people for an hour plus with, with no problem. That that was amazing. All right, so you know, I got to hit you with a, uh, with, a, with, a, with a couple of horror questions. So after K-Dot, who's your uh, second favorite member in the Black Hippie crew from a lyrical standpoint? Oh, dog. Schoolboy Q. All day. He, he's my dude, man. He's, um, the thing I love about Schoolboy Q is that it's like a, it's like a sophisticated ignorance to his music. <laughs> and it's the kind of, it's the kind of music that I need sometimes because I think, you know, a lot of times the rifle is so people looking, 
the weird music dude, the jazz head, uh, the you know, conscious rap cat. And that's cool. But every so often, you know, I just need to hear something like, uh, you know, Schoolboy's record. Uh, um, my memory is failing me now, but um, the one he came out with before this most recent one where like Anderson Pack was on it, Kanye West, uh, that was the one that I always go to uh, in terms of black hippies. Definitely schoolboy. And that, that entire crew was, um, you know, nice. Uh, schoolboy, uh, Anderson, yeah, nice little movement. All right, so you remember um, a couple years ago, Kendrick had the verse on Control on Big Sean's album, one of my favorite verses of the last seven years. So in my opinion, I don't think nobody even had a, a quality response to Kendrick. But if you had to pick one, you know, who do you think had a good response to uh, Mr. Lamar? You know, I mean, this is why I give J. Cole credit. Um, because I feel like whereas ever, other people may have gotten a little sensitive um, in terms of taking a little passive aggressive shot to do after that, you know, i.e. Big Sean and Drake, I feel like J. Cole just kind of kept doing his own thing, you know, and, um, you know, if, if I'm being honest, J. Cole's music is never really, I, I respect what he's doing, but I've never, like, reached for a J. Cole album. Um, and like you know and play it <laughs> because i just feel like it's kind of middle of the road but that's just one man's opinion doesn't mean nothing but i i do respect the fact that even after that verse and after all the hubbub he just kind of was like okay all right i heard it but i'm gonna keep going i'm gonna i'm gonna give y'all you know four seals drive i'm gonna give y'all all this other stuff um so i would say he had the best response because he didn't get ruffled and he understood that it was hip-hop and if i'm if i'm an artist at that time and I get named on that verse. I'm taking it as a sign of respect, but I'm also taking it as a sign that, okay, maybe I need to, I need to step my game up. Be, you know, we can, we can still be friendly. We can hang out in public, but my only competition is myself. And I feel like that's what Kendrick did with that, where it's like, hey, I, you know, this is all friendly, but I still want to be the best, and you all should want to feel the same way. And if you don't feel that way, then there's something wrong with you. So. Um, shout out to J. Cole for actually taking an adult approach and, and just kind of, you know, just kind of going about his business as usual and um, doing his best to make better music. Yeah, and I, I feel you on uh, Cole. Like, you know, I mean, I like Cole enough. Cole, Cole's doing his thing too. But J. Cole's like, you can't really compare anybody, but I mean, you know, he's somebody that I don't like bumping stuff on the regular, but I mean, I got his entire discography. You know, I do listen to him, but. Like, I don't really rock to him on the regular. And when I saw J. Cole live on his last tour at Nissan Pavilion, well, Jiffy Loop now, it was uh, J. Cole, his entire crew, and Big Sean. Now, mind you, you know, lyrically, J. Cole is light years ahead of Big Sean, but Big Sean actually had a better stage show and, like, a better presentation than J. Cole, which shocked the hell out of me because, you know, I, you would think that J. Cole would come more alive but i mean i guess as big sean had those uh club bangers and just it came across better for big sean because it was an you know outdoor venue and like a festival type of thing to where the j cole like you know might come across better like at a 9 30 club or you know even like maybe with the at the kennedy center with the uh, orchestra back in them kind of with how kendrick did it a couple years ago yeah, yeah so, so shout out shout out to j cole shout out to big sean shout out to kendrick so if you wrote a companion piece to the butterfly effect possibly focus on an R&B album or focusing on a singer, who would you pick and why? I would, I would pick, and it's, I, I guess it's not, I don't know, that would get into semantics of R&B versus soul, whatever, but uh, to me, man, I, I would love to write a book about Minnie Ripper, and, um, and I know that's going back a ways, and it's not contemporary, but I do feel like in the grandest scheme of things, Minnie doesn't get the credit 
that she deserved for having not only an amazing voice, but having a free-spirited sort of creative approach to her music, you know, whether it's her solo, her solo work or her work with the Rotary Connection. So I would love to write a bio on many, but I would love to spend a lot of time writing about the Come to My Garden now because, um, you know, as much as, and I do this too, and I did this for a review where I wrote about Perfect Angel. And when we looked at Perfect Angel, we, we celebrated because it had the hits on it, right? So it had, it had Loving You on it, Stevie Wonder was a co-producer, and it has a really big sound, it has a commercial sound, but it, it was still within the pocket of the psychedelic soul that she's always done. But I feel like if you go back and you listen to Come to My Garden, it has this, this sort of understated orchestral feel that you hear in a lot of music today. It's very understated, but it also feels very big. If I were to liken many in that album to anybody today, I would say it sounds to me like Janelle Monae, like what Janelle Monae does on like the Arc Android. So um, that's what I would do. I would make those connections and I would want to talk to people around her, obviously talk to Maya and walk through Manny's life up until when she um, died prematurely in 79 and spend a good deal, like I did in the Kendrick book, where the biggest chapter by far is about the Pimper Butterfly. I would spend a great deal of time on coming to my garden and hanging out. Dope. And totally agree, man. We really don't put enough respect on uh, Minnie's name outside of, like, you know, the R&B circles. And, you know, I think a ton of people be, I mean, we know, but, I mean, I think a ton of people will be surprised to find out, you know, that that's, um, my Rudolph is, you know, her daughter. I mean, I don't think that's, like, known to the masses you know only like right. die hard music heads know that yeah that's a good choice all right so recently you wrote a story about um colonius monk for the new york times i'm very big on um biopics and i would love to see a Thelonious monk story told in some format so given that you wrote a story on mr Thelonious monk who do you think could pull him off in a biopic on screen <laughs> you know what it's funny that you asked that question because I after I wrote that story for whatever reason I was thinking that same exact thing because I was having conversations with Robin Robin Kelly who wrote what I think is the definitive biography of, of Monk kind of came out about 10 years ago I would love to see Wendell Pierce I could see Wendell Pierce doing that um, but I could also see Idris uh, doing it too but if I were to have a lean I would say Wendell because, you know, if we're, if we're talking, if this call is about like folks not getting their flowers, I think we need to put more respect on Wendell Pierce's name. I mean, bump from the wire. Come on, man. Like this dude is a whole legend. So I would love to see what he would do with that role. Yeah. And Wendell can also play um, instruments as well. So yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing Wendell play BB uh, King. They announced that a few days mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love saying goodbye. pick. All right, man, you know, probably let you go, man. You know, we got to talk about the DMV really quick. So what was your um, go-to spot for mumbo wings when you were growing up in Landover? Yo, here's the thing. I was such a Landover C. Pleasant kid that uh, I, don't, I don't think the culture was as strong there for that food that it was indeed. But I did have a spot. I used to, um, I used to walk up Martin Luther King Avenue because I used to live on Eli Place in Landover. And I would walk up uh, Martin Luther King Avenue and go to the to the Jerry's that's over there, right at the line. It's right at the, it's that weird intersection of, okay, if you go to the left a little bit here in Capitol Heights, if you bust that right, you're in Fairmont Heights. And so I would go there, um, probably more often than I should have, for real, for real. <laughs> I would go there like once a week and, and get to carry out there. So I would say that's my go-to spot just by virtue of, it was in the neighborhood, and it was like a 15-minute walk from the crib. I would say that's my number one. 
All right. In your um, clubbing days, did you frequent the Ritz or DC Live more? Oh, here's the thing. I was never really a club dude like that. I was never a club dude. I know I totally know both of those spots, but, uh, you know, in, in, in those days, I was more so like the, the, the like, oh, let me go to HR 57. Let me go to Bohemian Caverns or shout out to, to Lid, because even before I moved up to New York, uh, there was the up and up open mic, and I would go there, and there was there was upstairs, you know where Lyft was, right? Where it was um, it was above uh, that restaurant, it was above Bohemian Cabin. So yeah. I would go to to spots like that. I was never like the oh let's go to Love, let's go to you know. I was never that dude. I would always pick people up from there, <laughs> but I, but it was time for me to have a good time. I was never going there myself. I was always hitting up the the old head spot, so to speak. Yeah, I, I was kind of the same way. I mean, you know, I would um. <clears throat> party at um I love when it was love before it was dream at, at, at you know or dream at the time or <laughs> on occasion you know when I came back home um whatever reason like you know people home from college and we would go to the Ritz and stand in that long ass line it'd be cold as all get out outside <laughs> yep. if, and if I felt froggy and you know felt adventurous I would go to the ice box to hear go go but that was very very rare you know because you had to move around you know you couldn't say you couldn't just post up in nice box you had to move around or you know you, you might get stepped on well same thing with crossroads <laughs> you had to be careful you know you had, you had to you can go there but then like you said you had to stick and move a little. all right and you know this last one i'm gonna shock you a little bit so go-go you know even though i grew up in the dmv i'm not a die-hard go-go fan now i do like hearing go-go live and i'll um you know go to a show like back in the day but as a music fan yourself, do you ever feel the sound of Gogo can be duplicated on wax as it is at a show? I don't think so, man. I don't think so. And I've listened to a lot of Gogo, and it just, like you said, it just never sounds. It never sounds the same when you put it in the studio. The only, the only band that's been able to do that, in my opinion, I'm sure I'm getting somebody for apologies, but EU. You know, when they had their run in the '80s, when Spike Lee was tapping them for uh, School Days. Um, that's when it sounded good, but even then they brought a whole bunch of people into the studio to try to simulate a lot of feel. So I don't think we ever quite figured it out, man. I don't, I think it's one of those where it's, it's, it's homegrown music, but for whatever reason, it just never made it outside of the DMV. And, um, I don't know. I never understood why, why musicians don't just record the live show and put that out as the record. You know, like I, I don't get, I mean, we do that obviously because like my friend Jermaine in particular, used to always have like all these different go-go tapes, you know, so the tapes were ubiquitous, but in terms of just putting it out for mass consumption, it just never, it never took off. And the only time it took off is if somebody from outside of the city did it. So like if Joe Scott was using it for a single or if the Roots used it and put Wale on it, you know, Wale did it too, to his credit, you know, he had go-go on his first record um, in particular, but yeah, it's just, it's a sound that you just kind of had to be there. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you can, you can bring that into a studio and make it sound just as good, unless you tinker with the mix a little bit. I don't, I don't think Gogo should ever sound clean. You know, all of the studio Gogo records I've heard sound way too clean and uh, not dirty enough to actually get the vibe of what's going on in that space. No doubt, you know. And I thought for sure that um, around '03, even though Anne Marie was first, I thought for sure that Rich Harrison was gonna um, do something with go-go like it was gonna take on a national type of thing but you know it never um yeah it never caught on because i could easily you know, i used to dj so you know i would always mix crazy in love with um ushers take your hand then then go then go back to 
Anne-Marie's one thing. Then I would try to bring in um, sardines, just, you know, change, pull around with tempos. But yeah, Go-Go should have caught on quicker. But I guess it's like hyphy, you know, out in the Bay. It's only for that area, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, totally. All right, folks. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed hearing the um, brilliance and just the laid-back attitude of a fellow DMV native, Mr. Marcus J. Moore. I highly, highly encourage you guys to pick up his book, The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America. Amazon, Kindle, um, whatever you use. It's a very short book. I think it's only 240-something pages. No, yeah. But, um, I mean, Mr. Moore definitely has appreciation for Kendrick's art. He goes into depth with talking about Kendrick. So this isn't just a run-of-the-mill, like, cash grab. This is actually a a writer who appreciates hip-hop, appreciates Black culture, and he really did Kendrick proud. So before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to add? And where can folks follow you on social media? Oh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward on social media. Just, um, you know, Twitter is at Marcus J. Moore. Uh, Instagram is underscore at Marcus J. Moore. And, um, yeah, those are the two main places in the book. You can pretty much find anywhere, thankfully. And uh, support your local bookstores when you go past that. All right, folks. Well, as always, you know, I'd like to leave you all with a quote. And today we're going to go to the book of Kendrick Lamar. If I told you that a flower bloomed in a dark room, would you trust it? Kendrick Lamar. Until the next time, done out. This is America. Peace on left, justice on the right. Peace on left, justice on the right. This is America. This is the reason Kaepernick was taking a knee. Heartbroken when I saw that video, I almost couldn't finish it. It was a pop. We gotta start making changes. There's a virus in police departments across this country. Good cops know who these bad cops are. You have every right to be angry. Can you tell me why? Every time I step outside, I see my die. You have no right to perpetrate violence on the very communities that you are standing up for. A lot of people have been using my father's words. That all men are created. The only pathway to do this is through nonviolent means. I'm letting you know. We will bring you justice, I promise. When if God got us, then we gon' be alright. Start making some changes.